0: In Job four, chapter five, maybe even in chapter fifteen or so. So if you got a Bible, there's not you don't have one on there. It might be one or two rows before you in the little cubby beneath you. But turn with me to Job four. You know, Proverbs eleven fourteen. I love the Proverbs, the pithy sayings of the Proverbs, much about wisdom. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, Where there is no guidance, a people fall, but in an abundance of counselors there is safety love that. In an abundance of counselors, there is safety. However, we're going to be introduced to Job's friends this morning, and I call Job's friends the (laughs) anti-proverbs. In in their abundance of counsel, Job is not safe, right? And that's what we're going to begin to see over these next several weeks. So turn with me to Job chapter 4 as we meet the first of Job's friends, Eliphaz. And so Eliphaz continues here in Job chapter 4, Eliphaz the Timonite. Folks, this is God's Word. Let's come and heed it, listen, and pray that the Lord would indeed instruct us and encourage us this morning. Job 4, Eliphaz the Timonite answered Job and said, If one attempts a word with you, will you become weary? But who can withhold himself from speaking? Surely you have instructed many, Job. You have strengthened many weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you've strengthened the feeble knees. But now it comes upon you, and you're weary. It touches you hardship, and you're troubled. Is not your reverence, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope, Job? Remember now whoever perished being innocent, or where the upright ever were cut off. Even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same, by the blast of God, they perished, and by the, by the breath of his anger, they are consumed. The roaring of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, and the teeth of the young lions are broken. The old lion perishes for a lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Now a word was secretly brought to me, Job, and my ear received a whisper of it. and disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night, in other words, his dreams, when deep sleep falls on man, Fear came upon me in trembling, which made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed before my face. The hair of my body stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice saying, Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If he puts no trust in his servants, if he charges his angel with error, How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed before a moth. They are broken in pieces from morning till evening. They perish forever with no one regarding. Does not their own excellence go away? They die even without wisdom. Can you imagine being Job going through so much grief and suffering and your friend Eliphaz comes and counsels you like that? Boy, thanks a lot. You know, the Peanuts, I love Peanuts cartoons. I miss the Sunday comics. But one of my favorite Peanuts or Snoopy cartoons is the one where Lucy is saying to Charlie Brown, she's saying, listen, Charlie Brown, there's one thing you're going to have to learn. You reap what you sow, Charlie Brown. You get out of life what you put into it, no more and no less. And then Snoopy over in the corner says, I'd like to see a little more margin for error, he says. Well, I think that summarizes, really do, I think that summarizes the book of Job, but it certainly summarizes Eliphaz's contribution, the first friend that were introduced here and in Eliphaz's counsel to Job. Eliphaz, if you jump ahead to chapter 15, verses 9 and 10, Eliphaz introduces himself in chapter 15 as Job's gray-haired friend who's old enough to be Job's father, and so Eliphaz being the oldest of Job's friends, he's the one who gets to speak first and he almost talks about himself of such wisdom and eloquence because he's the older friend of Job and so he does speak first and now the silence we see is broken and he claims as we saw in verse 15 and 16 that Eliphaz received this divine revelation, a dream where now he can speak on the authority of God and give wisdom to Job. He has this dream, he says, a a spirit glided past his face. The hair on his neck, he said, stood up. And he's saying this underlying the fact that what he's about to say to Job comes from the Lord. You know, be careful, by the way, when you preface what you say to somebody with words like, the Lord told me to tell you or something like that. Who says the Lord told you, first and foremost? And if you're, if you're quoting Scripture, great. If you're quoting Scripture, I'm good with that. But if all you have is this emotional, hair-raising feeling that you take as somehow a sign from God that you want to challenge this person or counsel this person, well, beloved, let me caution you, okay? Let me exhort you to examine what you're feeling. Before you're prompted to speak, what you're sharing, is it scripturally sound? Can it really be lined up with what God's Word says? This man, Eliphaz, believes that's the case. That what he has experienced, this vision he had, this dream he has, somehow has divine support and he has divine authority to speak into Job's life. Even though what he's about to say is completely false. So, Beloved, just as a side note, we jump right in here in the sermon. As a side note, be careful what you say when you counsel others. He James's wisdom from James where he says, Be quick to listen and what? Slow, he says, to speak. That will carry you a long way, beloved, in life. A promise. Okay, so what is it as we get in uh, to Job's friends and their counsel with him? What does Eliphaz have to say? What is it that he says? What is it the heart? Because we have quite a long speech here from Eliphaz. We're not going to divide and conquer every single verse here. We'd be here forever. You'd kill me on Mother's Day. And By the way, happy Mother's Day. I know you're thinking, gee, what a great Mother's Day sermon. (laughs) We're in Job, and this is God's word, and it will encourage your heart if you're a mother or not. So let's all... Come to the Lord, expectant this morning to be encouraged. So what's the heart of what Eliphaz says here to Job? What's the contribution that Eliphaz gives to Job? There's a lot of fluff here in what Eliphaz says. He's a preacher, isn't he? He's a little bit long-winded. Long-winded. Certain preachers can be long-winded. I don't know of many, but maybe maybe a few. So in verses 10 through 11, for example, Eliphaz, he uses these words, lion. He uses five or six different Hebrew words for lions. He's quite the orator. He's trying to express his skill as this great orator. But then we get to verses in 7 and 8 of chapter 4, and we get at the heart of what Eliphaz says. It's all very simple and straightforward. Look at what he says in chapter 4 of verse 7 and 8. He says, Who, being innocent, has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil... And those who sow trouble reap it. There's a common phrase you probably heard. You reap what you what? Sow. That's Eliphaz's theology here. He's analyzing. He steps back. He analyzes Job's situation. And he goes, "Mm mm-hmm, that's it. You reap, Job, what you sow. In fact, you've lost all of your children. You've lost all of your wealth, Job. You've lost much of your health. Something's going on, Job. You must be reaping what you're sowing. You get out of life, Job, what you put into it. No more and no less, as Lucy said. No margin for error. That's the explanation for your suffering, Job. It's what we call theologically divine instant retribution. is the technical term for it. Or karma. You know, you you put in what you get out. Or you get out what you put in. You reap what you sow. Now, you need to appreciate that Eliphaz is not completely cuckoo. His counsel might be completely cuckoo, but Eliphaz himself, he's not completely cuckoo. He believes in a sovereign God. You read what he said here. He does believe in a God who's sovereign. He believes in the justice of God. He he believes in sin. He believes in total depravity. He believes in original sin. Eliphaz believes that God executes judgment upon sin. Look what he says in verse 17. He says, can mortal man be right before God? Can someone, a human, can any of us find ourselves in a right relationship with God as we are? No, none of us can, can we? None of us can be in right relationship with God. What does the Bible say? That That's why we need the gospel. That's why we need the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we need forgiveness. Because what does Paul tell us? That there is none righteous, no, not one. For all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. El- Elphaz believes that. Look what he says in chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, jump ahead to chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Look what he says. He says, For hardship does not spring from the soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Yet man is born into trouble, as surely as sparks fly upward. In other words, he's saying trouble. I don't believe that trouble just happens. There's always a reason for trouble, Eliphaz is saying. Trouble doesn't just randomly happen and come upon us. There's a reason for it. And Eliphaz believes that the reason for that is because man is a sinner. Think of it as discipline. Think of it as divine retribution. And so there's this non-subtle hint here that Eliphaz believes Job is being foolish. Look what he says in verse 2 of chapter 5. He says, surely vexation, vexation kills the fool and jealousy slays the simple. So here's the gist of it. Eliphaz believes in divine retribution. You know, you deserve what you get. You deserve... Whatever you put into it is what you get out. You reap what you sow, and that's pretty much Eliphaz's speech to Job ad nauseum over and over again. John Calvin, the great reformer, the great pastor, the great theologian, he preached this exhaustive series on the Book of Job. He said that Job's friends only had one song, and they sang that song to death. It's the song that never ends. Ha! I gotcha. <laughs> That's essentially what Calvin said about Job's friends. It was the song that never ends. And here's the, the words to the song. You want to know the words to the song? It's this. you got to get out of life what you put into it. No more, and no less, you reap what you sow. you got to get out of life what you put into it. No more, and no less, you reap what you sow. Over and over and over again. Now, is that true? Is that true? What are we to make of this? That you get out of life what you put into it, no more and no less. You reap what you sow. Is that true? Think for a minute. I'm not trying to trick you or fool you. Is is that true? Partly so, isn't it? Partly. That's partly true, isn't it? The view of Eliphaz, his counsel to Job is partly true, isn't it? The Bible does teach that there is something like instant retribution, that God punishes sins, that sometimes God instantly punishes sins following certain actions. He does that. We see scriptures that support that, stories and scriptures that support that. We need to understand that. Paul says in Galatians 6, uh, verse 7, he says, Do not be deceived, beloved. God is not mocked. For whatever you sow, Paul says, you will reap. There there we have New Testament support for that. Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, saying that. You reap what you sow, you get out what you put into it. In other words, Paul's saying there are consequences to your actions. Okay, parents, don't you teach that to your children? (laughs) There are consequences. It's Mother's Day, kids. Children, I'm talking to you. Kids, look at me. Has your mama ever whooped you? (laughs) Raise your hand. Ah, yeah, I got a lot of, yeah, Our parents raised their hand, yes. Yeah. There are consequences to your actions, kids, isn't, isn't there? There are consequences when you do certain things. When your mom calls you to come, she, first time she's going to say, oh, uh, David, dear, come. And David doesn't come. Oh, David, last name, get in here, third time. when she gets to your middle name, David, da-da-da, Get in here, you know, it's going to be a whooping, right? You better get in there, right? There are going to be consequences, especially on the third time. There are consequences. We live by that principle, don't we? We believe that. We believe that there are consequences to our actions. We believe that God operates to the same law. There are consequences to our sin. There are consequences of our failure to follow and trust the Lord. There are consequences to our transgressions. You do reap what you sow. Let's get some Old Testament support for this. There are so many places we could go. I think of 2 Samuel 6. Y'all, many of you remember this story with Uzzah. Uzzah and his brother Ahio, I think it's a, it looks like Ohio, Ahio were responsible for transporting the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenants. A very crucial, important job. The Ark of... The covenant, God's very presence with Israel, was captured by the Philistines. God allows Israel to recapture the ark back and bring it back. And so they were bringing the ark back to Jerusalem for worship. But they had to stop at this man's house for a break, to rest, right? And so they stop, they rest. The next day, it's time to move the ark of the covenant on an ox cart, to take it to Jerusalem for worship, to take it back to its rightful place, and so this cart is being pulled along by oxen. oxen you've got Uzzah and his brother following and walking beside the cart to make sure it arrives safely to Jerusalem. And they're, they're leaving. They're headed out towards Jerusalem. They hit southwest Virginia roads, right? And all of a sudden, the ark starts to wobble, right? And Uzzah does what probably any one of us would do. It was a natural reaction. Uzzah reaches out instinctively without thinking. He reaches out to steady the ark of the covenant because this is... The representation of the very presence of God. You don't want that thing falling off and hitting the ground. That would be bad news. So Uzzah puts his hand out to steady the ark, and in an instant, God strikes him dead on the spot. Now, if you've got problems with a God who does things like that, this isn't time for us to get into that. That's another sermon. I'm telling you what happened. Or if you think, oh, well, that, that's just the Old Testament, Stephen. That's just the Old Testament, God. Well, that's another problem for another time we'll have to get into. Here's what I do believe, and I know, that God's word is, inf- is infallible and it is inerrant. In the passage, 2 Samuel 6, when he reaches out to steady the ark, God strikes him dead. It teaches us that there are, beloved, look at me, there are consequences to your actions. God is holy. He is Holy. And the ark of God is a representation of the holiness of God. There were at least a dozen rules that had been broken that day in the transportation of the ark to Jerusalem. Uzzah should not have touched it, and God struck him dead. Well, that's just the stuff that happened in the Old Testament. That's why I don't read the Old Testament. I read the New Testament because we're New Testament Christians, right? Okay, let's go to Acts chapter 5. Let's go, okay, let's go to the early church. In fact, there's a movement among Christians now that we, you ever heard this phrase? We just need to get back to the early church. Okay, let's do that. And I'm not saying this mockingly. Let's go to Acts chapter five. Do you remember Acts chapter five, Ananias and Sapphira? Do you remember that the church, the early church was fledgling? It was under intense persecution. And because of that intense persecution, persecution, there was much poverty among the early Christians because their goods were being taken away, they were being persecuted severely. And so the early church in a sense was experiment, experimenting in a very particular context. They were holding their goods and their property in common so that they could all be taken care of. It was this voluntary thing in a time of much need and poverty and persecution. Ananias told what you and I would maybe consider a white lie about the value of his property. It wasn't, I guess in some of our minds' eye, it wasn't that big of a sin, some of us would think. God struck Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, dead. You have this little scenario of the early church. There are two bodies, there are two graves, because they lied, Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit. And there was instant retribution. Retribution. Does God do that sometimes? Sometimes, sometimes He does. I think so. Many times, though God delays His judgment, doesn't He? But beloved, please listen. Everybody hear this. At some point, all of us in this room will face the judgment of God. All of you. Including me. What does scripture say that it is appointed man unto uh, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after death the judgment? Beloved, all of us someday will face the Lord, and we will be accountable for everything that I've said, all the lies that I've told, and there are many. Everything that I've thought, all of my actions, everything Stephen will have to give an account before. The Lord, there will be an accounting, beloved, and it is coming. So sometimes God steps in in the now, right now, and sometimes he delays his judgment. Eliphaz is partly right. You reap what you sow. But it's also partly, actually, it's wholly wrong because God says so. What does God say about Job in chapter 1 and chapter 2? What did God tell us about Job? You remember, he was blameless. He was the God says about Job that he was the godliest man on the face of the earth, right? And that his suffering, Job's suffering, was not directly related to the fact that he was a sinner like the rest of humanity. God says that. You see, Eliphaz's theology, his thought, it it violates John chapter nine. Do you remember John chapter nine? We studied that just last year. The man that was born blind. Do you remember? The disciples are walking along. They encounter the man that was born blind. Very common uh, early Christian thought and Jewish thought was, well, you reap what you sow. That was kind of the common understanding, a common man's theology. The disciples run across this blind guy, and they go, oh, he's blind. Ha-ha, I get it. The reason he's blind is because either he sinned sometime when he was younger or his parents sinned, and so they try, they're trying to figure it out. They go to Jesus. Jesus, I just... I love the disciples. They're class A boneheads, just like me. <laughs> you know, they, I'm serious. It gives me great encouragement to think the, the guys that Jesus so loved, that were with Jesus day in and day out, were such boneheads. Jesus, we met this blind guy today. Can you tell us the reason he's blind? Is he blind because he sinned or his parents sinned? And fully expecting Jesus to say, oh, well, it was because of his parents. Let me tell you what they did when they were. In... No, what does he say? Neither. <laughs> And you could just see the downcast face. Oh, neither. Okay, well, Jesus, why is he blind? Because we want to see the works and the glory of God demonstrated in his life. And Jesus heals the guy and the healing of that man. It remains a blessing to this day of those who read and think about that story. God brought the suffering into the life of this man. He had been born blind. He had never seen his mother's face. He had never seen a sunrise or a sunset. He'd never seen the flutter of a bird's wings. He'd never seen a flower. And God used the suffering in this blind man's life to be a conduit of blessing to others. He used the suffering in this blind man's life to testify to the immensity of the grace and the power and the loveliness and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he suffered because God was using him to speak life into others' lives. Take Paul, you remember Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul prays, he pleads for the Lord, oh God, deliver me from this thorn that's in my flesh. Three times he prays that the Lord might remove it. And God doesn't answer his prayer. God doesn't take it away. We don't have any hint of the problem. But I'll tell you one thing that we don't see in that passage is it doesn't say that that thorn was in Paul's flesh because of Paul's sin. It doesn't say that anywhere. But why does... God put that thorn in Paul's flesh so that God's grace would be what sufficient in his life. So there are other reasons, there are other explanations for suf- suffering other than divine retribution. Divine retribution is sometimes the ex- explanation. Divine retribution was the explanation, my dear friends, for the death of Jesus, though, wasn't it? Now, why... Why did Jesus die? He was without sin. So why does Jesus die? The moment that sin was imputed and reckoned upon Jesus for my account and my sake, God steps in an instant retribution on His own beloved Son. But divine retribution is not always the explanation for suffering. You see, the reasoning of this man Eliphaz is not dissimilar to the reasoning that we hear often today of gospel prosperity, gospel preachers or health and wealth gospel preachers. Maybe some of you are familiar with that term. Maybe you've seen some of them. Maybe you've you've listened to some of them. Listen, people, these health and wealth or gospel prosperity preachers preach that if you're a Christian, you shouldn't be sick. That's what they say if you're a Christian, you shouldn't suffer. If you're a Christian, not only should you not be sick, but you shouldn't be poor either. That's what they preach. It wasn't, it's not God's will for you to be sick, and it's not God's will for you to be poor. And if you do find yourself, so what's the, the, you carry that out to its logical conclusion, what are they saying? If you do find yourself sick, or you do find yourself poor, it's your fault because of your lack of faith. If you would just. Believe more. If you just have more faith, then you'll be healed. Or you have more faith, you'll have a fat bank account. You see, that's there's no room in Eliphaz's theology here. His explanation for Job's suffering is divine retribution. You get what you put in. You reap what you sow. But he had no room in his theology for maybe the fact that the reason for Job's suffering Even though his suffering was terrible, it was unimaginable, the tragedy and the trials that he was going in. But perhaps the reason for Job's suffering was because God wanted to grow Job. God wanted to grow Job in intimacy with himself, to grow Job in a sense of dependency, to grow him in a sense of his discipleship, to grow him in a sense of humility, to make Job yearn and appreciate that God wants to pour out grace upon grace, that God was ready to pour out grace upon him. You see, Job's suffering, suffering it had nothing to do with his sin. It had nothing to do with anything that Job had done so. But was more so, I believe, God's desire to grow him in his relationship with him. Eliphaz has no sense of distinguishing one kind of pain and one kind of suffering from the other. And not all pain is bad, is it? C.S. Lewis, in his great little book, The Problem of Pain, he said, not all pain is bad. God's created this wonderful thing in our bodies called the nervous system. And if you reach your hand out towards a fire, God's given you that gift of a nervous system to react, and you pull your hand back before there's any severe damage done. You don't do it again, right? If you were a kid, you remember touching something hot and you recoil? Pain is a good thing. Pain is a good thing. We don't like it. And don't we try so hard, beloved, to Insulate ourselves from it. But I think we need a little more sophistication in the analysis of pain and trials in our life. So what's, what's Job's response here? I love how Job responds today. Read chapter 6. I won't read it in its entirety, but I'll give it away. Job calls Eliphaz a windbag <laughs> in chapter 6. Isn't that awesome? Eliphaz Be quiet, you windbag. (laughs) You're full of wind. You're full of hot air. And you're no help to me. And then echoing in chapter 7, look at verse 17. Flip ahead to verse 17 of chapter 7. Right at the end, after he calls Eliphaz a windbag, right at the end of Job's response, let me read it. What does this remind you of? Look what he says in chapter 7, verse 17. He says, What is man that you should exalt him? That you should set your heart on him? Does that remind you of something? Sounds an awful lot like Psalm. I saw somebody mouth it. Sounds an awful lot like Psalm 8. Psalm 8 says, What is man that you are mindful of him? You made him a little lower than the angels. And of course, that means in Psalm 8 when it says, What is man that you're mindful of him? That you made him a little lower than the angels. Psalm 8's intention is to say, Isn't God wonderful? And isn't it amazing that man has been so blessed by God, that God made man just a little lower than the angels? Some translations say even a little bit lower than God. You see, Job's response here in chapter 7 is a a parody. Job is essentially, essentially saying, God, why all the attention on me? Enough, God. Focus your attention on somebody else. I'm tired of all of your attention. And then look at verse 21. This is how Job's response ends, at least here now, in chapter 7, verse 21. Look at what he says. He says, God, why then do you not pardon my transgression? You See, Job's almost beginning, I almost think he's beginning to wonder, hmm, maybe Eliphaz is right. Maybe it was me who sinned, and because of that, all this suffering is coming upon me. Why then do you not pardon my transgression, God, and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust, and you will seek me diligently, but I will no longer be. Lord, you will seek me, he's saying, but I will be gone. Sounds an awful lot like a kid, doesn't it? Any of y'all ever run away at home as, as a kid from home? I did. My parents were sending me to Camp Pinnacle for the summer with my cousin. Camp Pinnacle wasn't like a little five-day church camp. It was one month long. <laughs> I was 10 years old. I didn't want to be away from home for a month. You're going with your cousin David. You're going to Camp Pinnacle. It's going to be lots of fun. You're gone for a month. I don't want to go for a month. You know What am I going to do without you? So I tried to run away. The day before I left for camp, I ran away. It was 5 a.m. I wrote a note. Mom and Dad, I'm running away. Made a sandwich, and I left. <laughs> and I went to my neighbor's house. <laughs> and I hung out in their backyard until was probably maybe an hour, and I didn't know what else to do. I played with their dog for about an hour, and I said, okay, well. I'll go back home, sat on the front porch, and I read the state newspaper, and my dad came out and was like, oh, you ran away. He's like, yep. <laughs> I mean, it's so childish. It's as though Job is saying, God, you're going to be sorry when I'm gone, Lord. See what he's saying? He's talking like a little child here. He's saying, you'll be sorry, God, when I'm gone. What are the lessons here this morning? God, there's so many there's going to be a lot of lessons as we work through Job together, but we are just look at two very simple ones this morning, but essential. Listen, first one is this. quiet down, listen. Well-intentioned counselors, not just professional counselors, but I mean all of us, well-intentioned counselors, all of us on some level counsel one another, don't we? Well-intentioned counselors, can be entirely wrong. And that's hard for some of us to hear, isn't it? Because so often we all feel like we have the right answers for somebody, don't we? If they would just do this, or they shouldn't have married this, or they shouldn't have gotten married. or The list goes on. We think we have the right answers. and Perhaps God is trying to teach us this morning and me that, you may you may very well be well intentioned you might be very sincere and you might be very wise but you are entirely wrong that's hard that's hard for some of us to hear isn't it eliphaz is entirely wrong because god says so and then secondly and this is very general but Don't dismiss it because it's general. Folks, this is meat for you to chew on. God's ways are not our ways. Hear that, beloved. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Job asked, he he asked the question, why, Lord? And he doesn't receive an answer. He hasn't received an answer from God. He hasn't received an answer from Eliphaz. Eliphaz is just a windbag. And so Job is thrown into the arms of God, who at this point seems a little mysterious to Job, doesn't he? God's providence in Job's life seems mysterious. It seems beyond Job's capacity to understand or to find out. But it makes me think of the... It really is my favorite hymn. I've told Presley Ann when I die that this is what, this is the hymn I want sung at my funeral. So if she dies before me and then I die and and nobody knows what to do, I'm telling you, my favorite hymn for my funeral is God Moves in a Mysterious Way. I'll write that down. (laughs) God Moves in a Mysterious Way by William Cooper. My dog is named after him, by the way. Listen to the words. He says, God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea, and he rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs, and he works his sovereign will. Let me pray for us. God, would you enable us to heed these two lessons? That, God, we may very well be well-intentioned and wise and even know so much Scripture, but we can be entirely wrong in our counsel. Lord, would you help us? I, I do pray that you would help us to heed the wonderful wisdom of James, to be quick to listen and slow to speak. That, Lord, as we face a problem in our own life, or we certainly face a problem in someone's life that we love, that they seek us out for counsel, that Lord, we would marinate ourselves in the Word of God and Scripture. That Lord, we wouldn't just counsel off the fly based on our emotional feeling that we might feel that might be right for this person that we care for. But that God, we would cling to Your Word and know that the ultimate answer is that God, our ways aren't Your ways. Our thoughts aren't Your thoughts. And that the way that we can truly know what you think, the way that we can truly know the path and the road that's laid out before us is your word. So Lord, I pray, would you help us? Give us a hunger for your word, Lord. For every man, woman, and child here this morning, I pray that, Holy Spirit, would you inflame in their minds and hearts a hunger for the word of God. Not just heard on Sunday mornings, but read throughout the week that they would cling to your word. So, Father, would you help us? God, humble us. Would you help us to trust you? As we face suffering, as we face trial, as as Craig read from the Psalms, that, Lord, we are poor and needy. Would you increase our trust and our faith in you? Help us to see so much less of ourselves and more of you, God, I pray. Would you work that miraculously in our lives, Jesus? And would you increase our love for you and more so would you increase our knowledge of your love, your sovereign love and grace for us. God, thank you for giving us your word. It is so precious. It is so wise. It's so what we need to hear. God, we love you. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final hymn.